After Ruth had left the threshing floor, Boaz went straight to the public square and took his place there. Before long, the closer relative Boaz had mentioned earlier strolled by. Step aside, old friend, said Boaz. Take a seat. The man sat down. Boaz then gathered ten of the town elders together and said, Sit down here with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to his relative, The piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want it. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here and before the town elders. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so I'll know where I stand. You're first in line to do this, and I'm next after you. I'll buy it. You realize, don't you, that when you buy the field from Naomi, you also get Ruth the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the redeemer responsibility to have children with her to carry on the family inheritance. Oh, I can't do that. I'd jeopardize my own family's inheritance. You go ahead and buy it. You can have my rights. I can't do it. In the olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business regarding matters of property and inheritance. A man would take off his shoe and give it to the other person. This was the same as an official seal or personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he signed the deal by pulling off his shoe. Boaz then addressed the elders and all the people in the town square that day. You are witnesses today that I have bought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilion and Malon, including responsibility for Ruth the foreigner, the widow of Malon. I'll take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive as lo along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from his hometown. To all this, you are witnesses this very day. All the people in the town square that day, backing up the elders, said, Yes, we are witnesses. May God make this woman who is coming into your household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. May God make you a pillar in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. With the children God gives you from this woman, may your family rival the family of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah. So Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her, and by God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. The town women said to Naomi, Blessed be God, he didn't leave you without family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in old age. And this daughter-in-law who has brought him into the world and loves you so much, why she's worth more to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and held him in her arms, caring for him as her own. The neighborhood women started calling him Naomi's baby boy. But his real name was Obed. See, Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. The king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
My name is Ashley, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Knox, and I'm really excited to get into chapter four of Ruth that we just heard. Today, we're wrapping up this Advent sermon series, four weeks on the four chapters of Ruth. I really love when things line up perfectly like that, don't you? I'm gonna be talking about what we can learn about love from Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. Magnificent, self-emptying love. So how fitting that today we lit the love candle on our Advent wreath. And as we get into Ruth in a moment, I want you to hold Advent and Christmas in your minds too. Because Ruth's story, while spectacular in its own right, is just an echo of the great story of the gospel. The gospel is God's rescue plan for humanity, born out of his unending love for us. And this rescue plan comes to its climax in the form of a baby born in a manger, who we celebrate on Christmas Day. But not just any baby. This is God's child. It's God in human form, Jesus. Jesus, who is God, lowering himself to be with us in the dust. Jesus, who is God divesting himself of his galaxy-creating power in order to fit himself into our human form so that we might finally, really, and completely know him. And so that our rescue plan can be completed in the cross, in redemption. Spoiler alert, that's when, what we're gonna talk about at Easter. And you know what the great thing is? All the way back in the Old Testament, millennia before this happens, what we're gonna be celebrating in a couple days at Christmas, we can already see in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth how God's already telling this story of redemptive love, calling his people to gospel-type love. So let's hold that in our minds as we get into chapter four of Ruth, and I'm gonna pray God, thank you for this time where we get to all be together, where we get to learn together and hear from you. May I speak the words that you would have me speak, God. May our hearts be open to receiving your word. Amen. So probably helpfully, let's recap what's happened so far in Ruth. Three great chapters before we get into the first. Okay, so chapter one. Naomi and her family have fled Bethlehem to the country of Moab because of famine. This is already a tragedy. Tragedy strikes again, though, when after 10 years in Moab, her husband Elimelech dies and her two sons die. Naomi is left grieved and alone except for her two foreign daughters-in-law who are Moabite women. Naomi decides, I'm going home to Bethlehem. On the road, she sends, in her kindness, she tells her daughters-in-law, go home, stay in Moab. One of them accepts this act of love, goes home. The other one, Ruth, is endowed with a different story. Ruth says, stop telling me to go home. I'm coming with you. 
I'm coming with you, even adopting Naomi's God over her own God who she would have worshiped back in Moab. And she says this astounding thing. She says in verse 16 of chapter one, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Man, right from the very beginning, extraordinary love. Then in chapter two, we see the two women now living in Bethlehem, right on the margins of society as destitute widows. And they need to survive. And so Ruth takes advantage of the Mosaic gleaning laws. So so, so these are laws that God's people have followed. And they say, when it's harvest time, leave some edges on your field so that the poor can come and pick food and survive. Ruth goes and it turns out she's in the field of one of Naomi's relatives named Boaz. Here we already encounter Ruth's boldness because rather than just glean on the margins and make barely enough to survive, she asks Boaz, let me glean more. Let me come into the middle of the field and get what I need. So bold. He says yes. And then he even goes a step further and tells, tells his men, leave some food for her, leave extra, so that she will have enough. Chapter three, Naomi sees Ruth come home with more food than she expected and finds out that Boaz was kind to her beyond social expectations. Suddenly, Naomi, who's lost everything, has hope, and this is what Pastor Phil preached on last week, is that all of a sudden, she's, she sees God's kindness to her again, and she has hope, and she hatches a daring plan. She says, okay, Ruth, you're gonna get all dressed up, and you're gonna go, and you're gonna lie at Boaz's feet on the harvest festival night, the threshing floor, and you're gonna wait and see if he marries you. Why does she do this? It's because in the, in the context of this story, marriage is essentially the only security available to these women. It's a, it's a harsh world that they live in for women. And Naomi sending Ruth to do this, she's just, this is a bold plan to, to rescue this widow and give her some security in life. So Ruth goes, she does what her mother-in-law asks. She takes it one step further. Are you seeing a pattern in Ruth's behavior yet? She always, she just goes for the extra. She lays at Boaz's feet and when he wakes up, she doesn't wait for him to say, hey, I'll marry you. She tells him what to do. She says, spread your garment over me. We're gonna get into what that means in a little bit. She says, because you're the kinsman redeemer. She calls him out on a law. She says, you're, there's a thing you're supposed to do. Then we get to chapter four, where incredibly, Boaz has said yes to her bold ask, and we're gonna see how he like runs with it in chapter four. He not only says yes, but he does an amazing thing for these women. And as we're looking at how Boaz does that in chapter four, let's remember that this isn't like a human plan hatched. All of these coincidences that Ruth happened to be in Boaz's field, that Boaz was somehow moved beyond social convention to do more for them. We are supposed to, we are meant to see God's hand working on their behalf, that this was was something that God was doing for them on their behalf. 
Boaz is acting as God's agent, which should echo to you the call in the New Testament to, to those of us who follow Jesus to be God's hands and feet in the world. We hear that a lot in church, like we're, we're meant to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world, and I love how we're already seeing that in how Boaz intercedes and advocates for the women. He's being God's hands and feet to redeem them in this, in this Bethlehem story. I'm gonna check in with my notes, make sure I've said. All right, yes, we're good. <laughs> now I'm gonna, I'm gonna read what our wonderful team read to you just now, because I don't know about you, but the first time I reread this chapter, as I was preparing this, I was like, there's like a lot of legal terms happening, and there's like the weird thing with the sandal, and I don't fully understand how all of this interacts with each other. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read that first part of chapter four, and I'm gonna interject, hey, this is what's happening, um, so that we can understand the laws at play and the really incredible way that Boaz is gonna like, kind of be a little bit, cre take creative license with the laws in order to benefit Ruth and Naomi. Okay, so you can turn with me if you want to Ruth chapter four, starting at verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. How convenient, I love that. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz must have like a lot of clout in this community that he can just interrupt a person's day and say, come sit with me. Just come over here, I have something to tell you. Then Boaz took 10 elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Again, like this guy must have authority that he can just summon 10 elders to come and bear witness to what he's about to say. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So this isn't just like a nice idea. Kinsman Redeemer. It's not like, a, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you did that for them? This is a law. It's called the Kinsman Redeemer Law. And you can, um, if you want to read more about it, it's in Leviticus 25, 25 to 28, where it tells you like really specifically, this is what's supposed to happen. And what it is, it's a law that protects land from going outside the family. So you can imagine you're in a tribe and, and all the people in your tribe own a certain amount of land. Maybe one of them gets really poor and has to sell their land. The tribe does not want that land to go outside of the family. And so in order to ensure that the land stays in the family, they made this kinsman redeemer law. And it says, you can't just sell it to anyone. There's a legal requirement on your nearest relative to buy it from you. That keeps it in the family keeps it in the family. And this is a law that, that's it. That's the whole law. I want you to remember that because in a little bit we're gonna see how Boaz decides he's just gonna add some stuff to it. He's just gonna add some things to it. Because the thing is, on its own, this kinsman redeemer law does nothing for Naomi and Ruth. 
They have no male heirs who are close to them who could buy back the land. They have no sons to inherit the land. It's just a way for the guys who are distantly related to Elimelech to potentially expand their property portfolios. So Boaz is making kind of like a juicy offer to the nearest kinsman. Hey, there's some land for sale. You have first dibs. Tell me if you want to buy it. If not, I'm going to buy it. Great. So the kinsman says, I will redeem it. Great deal. Then Boaz said, then he added in a little clause. He says, on the day you buy it, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. If we knew the ancient laws really well, if we were in that time, I sense that there may have been one of these from the crowd. <gasps> or a, what did he just say? Because the kinsman redeemer law, they finished talking about it. it buy the property, there's no other nearer relative to buy it. But Boaz inserts what's called a leveret marriage clause. So Deuteronomy 25, five to 10, if you want you can look at it there. It's a completely separate law. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is it attached to a kinsman redeemer law. But Boaz calls to the leveret marriage law and he says, this land is attached to the widow Ruth, who he calls Elimelech's widow, which she's not, he's one of his son's widows. Um, and he essentially says, if you buy this property, you have to marry this woman, because what the Leveret Law is, and actually it's quite tragically still practiced in parts of the world today, it stipulates that if a man dies and his widow has no son to carry on his name, then it's required that that man's brother marry her, sleep with her until she has a son who can carry on the name. You can imagine the wild amount of abuse of widows that this leads to. And that's a current reality in parts of Africa and Asia today. And we shouldn't kid ourselves that it wasn't just as violent back then or it didn't lead to abuse back then. But here, Boaz is using it to try and benefit the women, because he's trying to attach the sale of land and the redemption of that lost land to their family by tying it to marriage so that the land goes back to the women. And you have to understand, in this time and in this place, owning land and having heirs who are male is everything. That's how the women can go from being destitute widows to having security. It's a harsh reality, but within that harsh reality, he's trying to advocate for them to have what they need to no longer be destitute widows. And he's doing it in a way that's like pretty unexpected. So he attaches this marriage leveret clause to the sale of the land. And all of a sudden, the nearest relative is like, oh, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. So essentially he realizes that if he has to marry Ruth and she has a son, the land won't stay in his family. It'll end up going to her, to her son because that son wouldn't be their son. Legally that son would be as if Elimelech had an heir. So it'd be like having a baby but it's 
it's, it's legally not his baby, even though he fathered it. It's legally now another man's baby, and then that family inherits the land. And I know, it's, it's like a lot of land owning. And the point, the point is that this would benefit someone else and not him. And suddenly he's like, that's not what I'm here for. I, you know, whatever his reasons are, he can't do this charity case, essentially. He says, no, sorry, can't do it. You do it yourself. You know, I hear implied in that, look, if you're out to, like, be some guy who, like, spends his money to do things that don't benefit him, bully to you. It's not what I want to do. Great. Now Boaz gets what he set out to get, which is the redemption of the land for Naomi's family and marriage to Ruth. A marriage which won't benefit him socially because now he's agreed to marry her and father a child if it's possible, but this won't have any social benefit to him because of what he himself has said. It will benefit Ruth and Naomi and the dead Elimelech and his dead sons. Even the dead, their line is being redeemed through this. It will benefit other people, and he will have spent his money, and he will have used his social currency at the city gates to make this happen. And it's so great that Boaz has this clever idea, which is just like accepted by the people at the city gates. But it's Ruth who gave him the blueprint for this idea back in her proposal on the threshing floor in chapter three. Carolus Custis James explains in her excellent book, Finding God in the Margins, how Ruth gave him the blueprint. She says, Ruth's intentions were perfectly clear to Boaz when she joined her request for marriage, when she said those words, spread your garment over me, with a reference to family obligations for Elimelech's land, when she said, for you are the kinsman redeemer of our family. In a single, innovative sentence, Ruth merged that Leverett law that we just talked about and the kinsman redeemer laws. Property, progeny, a foreigner just saying, hey, let's put these two things together. And Boaz, he says yes to this plan, and he takes Ruth's creative, let's call it creative approach to the laws, and he runs with it. He, like, he goes even further at the city gates. And I say this because he says that Naomi is selling the land. This is an extraordinary statement in a place and time where women cannot own property. And it's met with no opposition from the people at the city gates, maybe because of Boaz's high standing in the community. None of what Boaz says in chapter four in this legal transaction is customary. There's no other examples in the Old Testament of these two different laws being brought together. At best, Boaz is bending the laws, maybe even outright breaking them, but it's for the sake of redeeming Naomi's family line 
as Ruth has asked him to. It's not for the sake of personal gain. It's not for the sake of, you know, a selfish trying to acquire things that he couldn't in any other way. Everything that he's doing, we'll see, leads to the restoration of Ruth and Naomi, socially speaking, to the restoration, bringing them out of the margins and into secure standing. I call this a gospel type of love. So Boaz says, great, I will purchase the land. I will marry Ruth. He says acquire Ruth, actually. And here's another place where we can stop and be uncomfortable. This really highlights how powerless Ruth and Naomi are that they're being bartered like this, wholly dependent on the kindness and advocacy of Boaz. I think we can see God's hand in this too, protecting the women by putting them in a way of a man who will do the unexpected, who will go above and beyond social and legal expectations, though it costs him, there's no economic benefit, doesn't increase his power or privilege, gospel-like love. And then there's Ruth's utter boldness, her terrifying hopefulness, because her whole plan is banking on having a son. For this to all work and not just end up being Boaz buying property and marrying a younger woman, she has to have a son so that Elimelech's line will be redeemed, so that there'll be an heir, so that Naomi will have a son restored to her. Ruth, who has been called barren because she wasn't able to have a child for 10 years after her first marriage. There is a terrifying hopefulness to what she has initiated. And I think that's an example we can let sink in deep. Ruth is totally powerless in this equation from so many points of view. She is a foreign widow, no privileges or money to offer Boaz, no bride price that she can pay to sweeten the deal that he should, you know, that she could like kind of tell him like, if you do this, I can give you this money or this, this social advantage, none of that. She is speaking from the margins of society and from there, she is not content to ask for crumbs. She's not content to ask for that which will allow her to simply survive. She is asking the one with power and money, Boaz, to give up what he has in order to bring her and Naomi fully out of the margins, fully restored. I think this echoes God's plan for us. Not content to just give us a way to still be allowed to worship him. He came down into the dust and fully redeemed us on the cross. Not content to leave us on the margins, but to bring us back, give us an opportunity to stand in the throne room with him face to face. It's an echo of the gospel. That's 
God is offering us nothing less in Jesus. And you know where Naomi imagined that urging Ruth to see if Boaz would marry her and knowing that that would mean at least security for Ruth and probably her own continued survival because if Ruth's been kind to her up until this point, it's okay for her to assume she'll keep being kind to her. Ruth, again, won't accept the bare minimum that that is. She instead sees an opportunity to ask for more. Over and over again in the book of Ruth, Ruth is invoking laws and customs and then saying, let's take them even further, do more. From the gleaning law in chapter two, remember we talked about that? She's not content to glean on the margins. She asks for more so that her family can actually have enough to eat. In the kinsman redeemer laws and the leveret laws that I think so often led to abuse or to, to doing the bare minimum, she asked for more. She asked that they be used for restoration. Following these laws and customs to the letter is what Boaz had been doing in his life up until he met Ruth. He was known for being an upstanding law-following guy. But following these things to the letter still leaves the poor in a hand-to-mouth existence. It still leaves them wholly dependent on the generosity of other people, the whims of generosity of other people. And I think in Ruth asking for more, we can hear God's heart. That God, what God wants is full redemption and restoration. No matter what society says we have a right to ask for, God is always about the full restoration. Isn't that what we talk about when we say, your kingdom come? Redeem it all. Make it all good again. We're not content with just a little bit made good. We want what God wants. Ruth wants what God wants. Full restoration of this world. We see that in her life and in her desire to have her life restored. Carolyn Custis James, again, she has this great way of explaining it. She says, Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law. And the law looks really different from that point of view. Her proposal presses Boaz beyond the letter to fulfill its spirit. Where the letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. Now we're at the end of the book of Ruth. The plot is resolving. The sorrow from the beginning of the book is being redeemed. Boaz purchases the land, marries Ruth, sleeps with her, and it says God allows them to conceive a child, a boy. And then Ruth follows through with her plan, and the child is placed in Naomi's arms. At this point, the action has zoomed out, and we're no longer hearing Ruth and Boaz's voices and Naomi's voice. We're hearing the community around them. We're hearing how this has struck and touched, not just them, but everyone around them. First, when the elders bless Boaz after he completes the transaction, you can go and read that in chapter four, verse 11. They bless him for what he's done. I think that they see the echo of God in what he's done. And then we hear this again in the voice of the village women after the child is born and placed in Naomi's arms. They say in verse 14, 
Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name, he's Obed, become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. To understand what's happening here, I'm going to read to you what theologians Alice L. Lafay and Mari Leonard Fleckman point out in their stunning wisdom commentary on Ruth. The women who we've just heard assert that a son has been born to Naomi, even though physically Ruth has borne the child. The statement implies that Ruth has acted as next of kin rather than mother in order to give Naomi offspring who will continue her husband's line. By bearing a son, Ruth has provided a future for both women. The takeaway here isn't that our value as women is in childbearing. That's the context of this story, and it's the context around the world, sadly, in many places today, and I believe God wants to redeem that context. But within the context of what's happening, redemption has happened from the margins of society, from destitution, being restored to security. This is no small thing. And let's pause. What sacrificial love is this? That Ruth, a woman who was without children, who lost a husband, who's far from her homeland, willingly gives up her first child so that not only she, but also her mother-in-law will prosper. Because of Ruth's great act of love, Naomi won't be dependent on her for survival. Naomi is now restored with a legal heir, and this gives her social, economic independence, security. What love is this? What a beautiful example of self-emptying love for the sake of another. Gospel love that should remind us of Jesus. Then the action of the story zooms out even more. We're in the genealogy that roots us in the story of God's people, Israel. It says, a clear line is drawn between Ruth's child and King David. And we know that that line continues from King David to a baby born in a manger who we're gonna be celebrating extravagantly in a couple of days, our savior Jesus, the perfect Boaz, the one who redeems us all. I'm wrapping up here. I know this was a lot of information and Old Testament laws and following the minutia of a plot, but we have so much to learn from the Christ-like examples of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. Having understood what kind of radical love they showed for one another, we can ask ourselves, how can we practice that same kind of love? But also, the example of Ruth and Naomi's ability to receive love. The ability to receive love. Let that sink in deep. Naomi willingly receives incredible generosity from Ruth in the restoration of her life through the child Obed. Ruth willingly receives what Boaz has done. She asks for it and then she receives it. I am so struck by this example. It made me think about how sometimes we can struggle to be receptive of God's love in the same way. It's this free gift of grace. And I think what we can learn from Ruth and Naomi is to 
to just receive that generous love. We're not meant to be on the margins. We are meant for full restoration and redemption. And it's okay to receive that and to live into that. This story can seem distant. There's a lot of laws and customs and ways that things work that kind of date it. It's millennia old. But I also propose that Ruth is not so distant from us. The marginalized are here among us, and sometimes they are us. Boaz is not so far from us. The rich and powerful are here among us. Sometimes they are us. Naomi is not far from us. The grieving, those who are angry at God, are among us. Sometimes they are us. And yet, through costly, self-sacrificial love, redemption comes to pass in their lives. I'm gonna pray in a moment and ask that the Holy Spirit bring to our imagination how each one of us might practice this kind of costly, self-emptying love. Whether we do so from the margins, like Ruth, or whether we do so from places of power and privilege, like Boaz. And let's joyfully celebrate our Savior Jesus, who shows us a God who chooses to be with those in the margins of society and redeem and restore them, and doesn't choose the lofty places. Pray with me now. God, I pray for the Ruths in the room and the Naomi's in the room and the Boaz's in the room, that we would receive from you today, Holy Spirit, that which you are calling us to. What is the costly, self-sacrificial love for another that only by your power, only by your goodness will we be able to practice? And God, help us to also be receptive when you come among your people and use them to restore and redeem us, that we would know how to receive that love from others and we would know how to receive that love from you. God, go with us from this place and bring to mind these words at the right time for each one of us, that we might become more like Jesus. Amen.